How's it going, my fellow history scholars? Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about the unanswered questions of history and unravel the mystery of the many questions we ask about our past. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you are going to enjoy today's episode where we continue talking about the Shakespeare, Sir Francis Bacon, Rosicrucian theory that we talked about last time. And uh, it's quite an intriguing theory and there's many elements that we talked about last time with the people and this time we're going to get into the the conspiracy but before we do that i'd like to welcome back ian as well you want to yeah, say hello everybody i'm very excited to speak could be actually begin talking about the theory behind ls yes i hope you guys enjoy listening to the theory side of this we talked more about the fact side of it last time we're going to talk about the theory side of it this time but before we begin, I'd like to remind you guys that you can check the Facebook page for information on the episodes, as well as to ask questions and stay up to date on information concerning the podcast. Don't forget to show your support for the podcast by donating on the Anchor website, our awesome podcast server that we use to make all of these episodes possible. And I, as I've said before, besides a few er- errors here and there, it's been a it's been a pretty good server. I highly recommend it. And then in the end, we'll give some shout outs to those of you who have already liked the Facebook page. And again, I thank you for the growth that it's already been experiencing. We're at 54 people now. I'm going to send out some more invites and then uh, hopefully we can start making that number a little bit bigger. Remember, if we get to 100 people, I'll do something crazy around that episode time. All right. And then, like I said, today we're going to talk about the Elizabethan conspiracy concerning Shakespeare, Sir Francis Bacon, and other notable authors, authors as well as the Rosicrucians. This is a very intriguing subject and a mystery that has yet to be, yet to be solved. And we touched on it last time. We're going to finish this time. So I hope you guys enjoy it. I think you guys are really going to find this episode intriguing today. All right. So let's get into it. getting into the conspiracy behind Shakespeare's plays. Now, this conspiracy uh, really checks the validity of all of his works, his plays, his books, on all the types of uh, all the types of books he writes. Uh, Jake, you want to elaborate? Yeah, so pretty much I'll provide some background with uh, with these people and the Order of the Rosicrucians because it's it's very important to the development of this conspiracy that historical theorists and people have developed over time. And uh, so now we can begin examining Peter Amundsen's theory, because he's really the one that has done a lot of the primary research for this. And it's behind the authorship of Shakespeare's first folio, as well as other texts written by these mysterious people. And those are the Rosicrucians, obviously, as we've talked about with the last episode. And uh, this theory really surrounds his first folio, which was the first collection of or sorry, the first edition of all of Shakespeare's plays. And it was really divided into three categories. And these were his comedies, his histories, and his tragedies. And uh, it's pretty much the first collection of all of Shakespeare's works. And uh, this was originally published in 1623. And that was seven years after his death. The The folio editions were large and very expensive books. They were these really huge leather-bound books that included all of his plays and uh that they're definitely something you'd think about being on a an, an old dusty bookshelf, and uh, but they were seen as pr- prestige items very much back in the Victorian era because they were all of Shakespeare's works, and uh, Shakespeare was very well known back then, as we've talked about in the last episode. And uh, actually, Shakespeare wrote around thirty-seven plays, and uh, actually, thirty-six of these are contained in the first folio. So almost all of them, there's just the one play missing. I'm I'm not sure what that play was that was missing, but uh, it was very much the the first edition of all of his collected works, and it's considered one of the most influential books published today. Wow! So these were like uh, antiques back then, or not antiques, but like really, really precious items, like for the rich. Oh yeah, for sure. This. Definitely, if you uh, if you saw this on a, a bookshelf at someone's house, they were probably a rich family. Uh. Well, and you've got to take that into consideration. It would be like having a, a well-known author's books sitting on your bookshelf as well that's known today. Except back then, the having a well-known author's book sitting on your shelf cost more money 
because they were more well known. And uh, really, the books and uh, the way that books are being sold now are is definitely different than it was back then. Because really, you can get a book published by a well-known author just as well as you can get a book published by an, an unknown author. Yeah, exactly. And like back then, they didn't have the they didn't have even a printing press up. Well, actually, they probably did have a printing press, but they didn't have anything like that. Like a printer that we have like nowadays that can just they crank out books. Definitely didn't have the publication stuff that they did that we that we have today, but they did have the printing press that was invented by Gutenberg during the during the Renaissance, which was pretty much right before this period. Yeah. But nothing like the mass producing machines we have today. Yeah, definitely not. So pretty much to those who subscribe to this theory, they pretty much think that Sir Francis Bacon wrote Shakespeare's works. And uh, they actually referred to themselves as the as uh, Baconians, and uh, they dubbed those who maintain the orthodox view of uh, William Shakespeare writing his own works from Stratford, and so they call those people the, the Stratfordians. And so I want to call this the Baconian-Stratfordian debate that we're going to get into today. <laughs> I like those names. I think they're pretty funny. The, the Baconians. The Baconians. <laughs> Baconians. You know, I'm a Baconian. Every uh, every Sunday, morning, <laughs> I cook myself some bacon. Uh, Name some eggs, you know. <laughs> I'm a fan of the Baconians. <laughs> All right. So that's that's the debate we're going to get in today, and uh, I'm going to start with the the origin of the theory. All right, now I'm getting into the theory behind Shakespeare himself. Now, uh, Shakespeare wrote a lot of plays, books, and a lot of different styles, too. And it's uh, surprising the variety of styles that he really really wrote about and how well he wrote about all of them. He must have had the mind of, like, three fully developed philosophers, politicians, and, you know, writers. You know, and this conspiracy will really check the validity behind all of his works. Yeah, exactly. He's always been really considered as one of those men that have been really high up there on their intellectual scale and really high up there with those men who have been the the greats throughout history. And so the fact that he may have not written or may not have even been a real person really throws us all into a loop. So the theory is uh, very intriguing and uh, the man that brings it up, Peter Amundsen, he uh, he really may rewrite history as we know it. So the origin of all of this really started with Peter Amundsen, who we talked about. And uh, he was a Norwegian organist, actually. And he had worked for many years studying the first folio and alternative authorship of Shakespeare. And since 2002, he has decrypted many ciphers found in European books and a monument dating from the early 1600s up until the mid-1750s, and uh, particularly about the Rosicrucian conspiracy, whom we talked about in the last episode. So he really has a humble origin here. He really started as a, a Norwegian organist, which he played the organ for church services. So he really had a humble beginning with uh, this theory that he would really get his name from. Wow, it's uh, it's it's weird to think about going from playing the church organ church to creating fully developed conspiracies, determining Shakespeare's validity. Yeah, and maybe ultimately rewriting history as we know it. Yeah. So he really has a humble origin with the theory that he's been on TV and in books and uh, really all over the place in media platforms for uh, for this amazing theory that he's developed, and the fact that he only started as a as an organist really shows that if you put your, your mind into it, you can really accomplish a lot. So cipher work on the Shakespeare's sonnet and his first folio has revealed that they may have been written by Sir Francis Bacon. We talked about him in the last episode as well. And then uh, they were supposedly revived by Shakespeare towards the end of Queen Elizabeth's reign. These findings on some 30 sonnets all over his first folio provide strong evidence for Francis Bacon's authorship of the plays, as well as many other members who had close contact with Shakespeare. And you remember, may remember us talking about them in the last episode, and these are Ben Johnson and Henry Neville. Uh, 
Bacon's birth and then uh, the uh, affiliation with the Rosicrucian fraternity, whom we also talked about in the last episode. So this theory really has a lot to do with his, uh, his first folio, which was uh, the collection of all of Shakespeare's original works. And uh, it really was definitely considered a prestige item during uh during this period and we talked about that a little bit earlier but uh the the fact that the these codes and stuff may have been hidden in the first folio is really interesting because if so many rich aristocratic families had this first folio just sitting on their bookshelf and it revealed clues that said that Shakespeare wasn't even the author of that book they had spent so much money on it, uh, I'm sure it would have definitely enraged the the people who bought that book. <laughs> yeah, that's really crazy. Crazy to think about. Like maybe it, like buying some buying this uh, crazy wealthy uh, thing that only the rich can afford, and then figuring out that it's a fraudulent item. Yeah, exactly. And figuring it out that it may not even even been written by the man whose name's on the front page. So the epicenter of his discoveries have really been around deciphering these early editions of William Shakespeare and Sir Francis Bacon's work. And obviously the first really collection of Shakespeare's work, which we talked about earlier, is his first folio. And then uh, Sir Francis Bacon's works also play a really important part in this theory as well. So in 2003, Amundsen excavated two sites relating to the Tree of Life and or, uh, or the Nolan's Cross on the legendary Oak Island in Nova Scotia, Canada. So his findings brought him through so many loopholes and so many rabbit holes and all the way to Nova Scotia in the New World. So it's interesting to think about this theory having such a widespread connection that it may have even crossed the ocean into the New World in one form or another. And so... His findings obviously didn't go unnoticed, but they really attracted media attention. And uh, even the prowess of the legendary treasure hunter and Oak Island resident, Dan Blankenship, who had spent most of his life, if not all of it, excavating Oak Island, trying to find the treasure that was supposedly there. And so maybe the first, maybe the treasure of Oak Island is actually the the first folio and uh, its true authorship or uh, secret writings by Sir Francis Bacon or these uh these documents that may reveal a alternative version of history that we otherwise wouldn't have known well that kind of that's a really good connection to make there uh between this conspiracy and the 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 prophecy of the treasure on oak island yeah oak island's definitely been up there as well among the among the treasure site locations and uh those mysterious places that history hasn't really been able to uh revealed the past of in the modern day so oak island and uh this connection with uh shakespeare could definitely prove very profound if it, if it's proven true well so i i'm, I'm all, i know about the oak island but could you uh give a little background on the tree of life yeah so pretty much the tree of life was uh the set of boulders that were buried in a uh, perfect lines and uh, in perfect geometrical pattern on Oak Island. And uh, when they lined up, they formed almost a, almost a cross. And uh, interestingly enough, actually, in the center of this supposed stone cross or this supposed stone structure was uh, a boulder with a man's face carved into it. And nobody's been able to identify that face. Uh, some assume that it was Sir Henry Sinclair, who supposedly traveled to Oak Island, and uh, I think we touched about that in our first episode on the Knights Templar, and uh, the the secret Templar voyage to America that may have happened, and uh, some some think it's that, but maybe it's actually a, a the the true personage of uh, of Shakespeare, or it maybe has something to do with this theory. And so when Amundsen went there and uh, excavated it, he actually found a more boulders that prove that it wasn't a cross but something else and uh it's been assumed to maybe be the tree of life and so that's why they call it the tree of life or nolan's cross now because uh amundsen's theory went there and he was able to find these boulders that lined up as well but didn't fit with the original conceived image of this stone cross wow 
So this man really does his work. Yeah, he found stuff that has already changed history slightly, if not in a decent amount, because Oak Island is such an infamous place that maybe a month since discovery of these boulders will be the the last clue that the excavators like Dan Blinkenship and the Lucina brothers need to find this treasure on Oak Island. Wow. All right. So pretty much the cipher work. Are, uh, no, we so, already did that. Sorry. Right. In October of 2015, Amundsen published his third book called The Seven Steps to Mercy. And uh, this was really an updated presentation of his discoveries with numerous images, charts, and graphics. So if you guys are more interested in his theory than we have time to talk about, I definitely recommend his book, The Seven Steps to Mercy. And uh, I've read snippets from it. I have read the whole thing, and I plan to because I definitely have time now with the whole quarantine stuff that's going on. But I, I, I highly recommend it because it definitely presents more than we could possibly talk about in this episode. And uh, it gives Amundsen's theory justice because it really could rewrite history as we know it. And so it's worth the read. Uh, this book has also become available in a limited edition full color print. So if you want something a little bit more pricey, you can go for the, the full color print as well. And then uh, in January 2014, because of this publication, Peter Munson was featured in the first season of the TV series, A Curse of Oak Island, which uh, really doesn't surprise me, though, because he made this discovery with Nolan's Cross. I'm sure the Lagina brothers wanted it to be on the show and uh, reveal it to the whole world as well. And uh, that obviously screened worldwide on the History Channel and uh, really created fame for... Uh, for a month in and really brought his theory to the popular conception. Wow. And uh, if you guys haven't checked out Curse of, Curse of Oak Island yet, I definitely recommend you guys check that out as well because it's an interesting theory that uh, there may be treasure of Knights Templar origin or pirate origin or uh, the first manuscripts of Shakespeare and uh, something's buried on this island and they haven't been able to find it yet but the excavations and stuff they do have definitely revealed some very interesting things and uh, yeah, I, a lot of... sorry I yeah. definitely think uh, I, I think nah, I think they definitely will find something and um, I hopefully I'll be able to go there myself and I do want to do an episode on this hopefully sometime down the road to talk about it and give it more justice. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's so many, so many historical events that uh, relate to this island and so many, so many possible theories and treasures that can be found here. Like there's, there's no doubt that there's going to be some sort of findings that they'll find on this island. And I'm sure it won't take much time at all. Yeah. Before we know it, we may have uh, the discovery of a lifetime on this infamous island. All right, so let's get into Rosicrucianism. Rosicrucianism was a spiritual and cultural movement that arose in Europe in the early 17th century. And this was obviously after the publication of the three texts we talked about last time, the Alchemical Wedding, the Fama Fraternitas, and the Confessio. And uh, these were purported to announce the existence of a hitherto unknown esoteric order to the world based off Hermeticism and made the seeking of esoteric knowledge attractive to many. So the fact that it may have a connection, this theory with the Rosicrucians would definitely prove interesting because Rosicrucianism was definitely a huge fad during the during the Victorian era, during the Renaissance, and uh, in a sense till today with the AMORC or the Ancient Mystic Order of the Rosicrucians. So the... Rosicrucians, if they had a connection with this, would definitely show that Shakespeare isn't the person we we long thought him to be. Uh, maybe he wasn't even a person at all. And uh, if he was, he was maybe somehow connected with this mystical order that has been under scrutiny and uh, under pressure and uh, really hasn't been fully understood till today. So, what, what, so you mentioned like this is a little bit of a stretch, but you mentioned uh, Shakespeare might not even exist at all. How do you think they w that would have uh, 
gone about? How do you think they would have had that? That sounds like such a huge cover up to create a celebrity and then turns out that he's not even real. Yeah, it's definitely uh, confusing, I would say, because uh, we've heard about Shakespeare for centuries and uh, his works have struck the public since they were first since they were first produced. So how would this person who has had such an influential role on history not be a person? Uh, we've heard about him in so many different fields in, uh, in school and uh, reading his, some of his works and even in public life because Shakespeare has definitely still made his influence on movies. And uh, there's been tons of different movies based off of his plays. And he just has such a huge connection to, uh, to modern day and culture that it's almost unconceivable that he wasn't a real person. And uh, it's hard to understand. But could this Rosicrucian order actually have had such a power to hide a figure that we think is real and has had such an influential role in culture today? It would prove uh, very intriguing because it would definitely show the extent of Rosicrucian power and that maybe the Rosicrucians were a bigger order that had more connections than uh, we originally thought. And uh, maybe connections with Ben Johnson and Henry Neville and Sir Francis Bacon, who were also very notable people among their time as well. Wow. Is there any uh, examples of people creating a, a profile <clears throat> in the past, like creating a, a figure of power, even though they don't have an actual even though they're not an actual person. Oh, I'm sure people have used aliases. That's a thing that we see in uh, in different books and stuff. Mark Twain's an alias for uh, for Samuel Clemens. So in a sense, that's really not something new. But uh, as for making up a whole background and making uh, all these different works for for a person, this is a, it's definitely a very unique case. We've seen it in, uh, in different forms and uh, smaller forms for sure. But uh, on on such a scale that it is influenced and or on such a scale that it's influenced culture and society as much as it has has today, this is definitely something very unique. Yeah, to say the least. Right. <laughs> so ultimately, the question is: Could Peter Amundsen reveal a theory stating that it may be possible that Shakespeare was somehow connected to this mysterious order of the Rosicrucians? didn't even write his own text and was in on a secret plan to hide his works with a group of fellow conspirators and maybe even played a far larger part in a plan that nobody could have ever thought of or conceived. Well, it just may surprise you some of the evidence that these theorists and uh, Peter Munson himself bring up. So if you don't have anything to say, Ian, we'll get into Neville. Oh, that's, that seems to wrap it up pretty nicely. Let's hop right into the Neville and the authorship. Yeah. Sorry for the interruption of the podcast, but we're going to a short message from our sponsor. Oh, so we talked about Neville earlier, but um, let's get into his, his real connection with this theory. Yeah, so as hinted at by Peter Amundsen in his book, The Seven Steps to Mercy, the Novellian theory of Shakespeare's authorship contends that the English parliamentarian and diplomatic Sir Henry, Sir Henry Neville, as we talked about earlier, like we were saying, was uh, the one who actually wrote the plays and poems traditionally attributed to William Shakespeare. So the idea is that Henry Neville was actually maybe one of the co-authors of Shakespeare's works. That's uh, that's interesting to think about. So you think he worked alongside uh, Sir Bacon? Yeah, Sir Francis Bacon. They think it was uh, Sir Henry Neville and Sir Francis Bacon that wrote it, and then uh, Ben Johnson was a co-conspirator. Well, that means they'd have to know each other, and they probably knew each other through politics since they both served under... Uh, under King, King James. James, yeah. We talked yeah. about that last episode. So it's, it's not too far-fetched because these men did know or have wind of each other, at least. That's true. If not in a, in a personal sense, they definitely heard of each other, like we were saying, in a political sense, with uh, King James. 
or maybe even a even a cultural sense with uh, some of the stuff that they wrote. Because uh, obviously, you know your competitors if you're a you're, if you're an author. That is true, and maybe he was even maybe they're even connected, like as in uh, they read each other's works. Yeah, it's very possible. You always know your your enemy better than your friends, so. Or maybe not in this case. Uh, maybe in this case, they were actually allies in a greater conspiracy that nobody's really been able to figure out. All right. So this theory relies on re- relies upon perceived correspondences between aspects of Neville's life and the circumstances surrounding the contents of Shakespeare's works. Interpretive readings of manuscripts connected with Neville and uh, cryptographic ciphers and codes and the dedication of Shakespeare's sonnets and uh, some other perceived links between Neville and Shakespeare's works. Uh, These include, in addition, a conspiracy that is posited in which Ben Jonson attributed the first folio to William Shakespeare in order to hide Neville's authorship. So uh, this really, uh, he he shows his connection through cryptic through cryptographic clues. And uh, I included a link to a documentary that talks about Peter Amundsen and he kind of goes through with uh, a skeptic, these, uh, these codes and stuff that he's found in Shakespeare's first folio. So I recommend you guys check that YouTube link out in the description. But uh, supposedly I'm one of the pages that actually spells out Neville's name. And uh, it's all these cryptographic clues and ciphers and stuff that they were use that they were using. And uh, we talked about it a little bit in the last episode how uh, all these different people and people from different aspects of life had really some form of code, one or another. And so the fact that it's hidden with uh, cryptographic ciphers and codes, like c- cryptographic ciphers and codes, uh, really makes sense because it was such a widespread practice in this time. So if this practice was so widespread, how come nobody uh, deciphered it in their time? Well, obviously, there's a there's a complexity to different codes as well. Some are going to be more basic compared to some more advanced codes. So these were definitely more advanced codes if they haven't been figured out really till today. That's true. And it wouldn't surprise me considering Ben Johnson's skills. I mean, he's, he's proved to be very diplomatic and very well knowledgeable. Well, yeah. And then you take the fact... Knowledgeable get away with murder. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you can politically, uh, politically convince yourself out of a murder trial, that's pretty good. <laughs> uh, but we also got to take into account that it wasn't only Neville. It was Neville... Bacon and Ben Johnson, and the fact that they put all of their minds together really shows that they could come up with something advanced because alone these men were very known in their own aspects. But when you put them all together, they can definitely come up with something, something very good and something very secretive. And uh, it, it definitely would account for the fact that we haven't been able to figure it out till today. As uh, as the old as the old saying goes, one mind is or many minds are greater than one. All right, so pretty much the basis for the theory is that uh, is that William Shakespeare was a front to conceal the true author of Henry Neville, and that actually Henry Neville and Sir Francis Bacon were the true authors of Shakespeare's works. And uh, there are four main elements, really, that come together that may prove that Neville was uh, that Neville was one of these co-authors. And uh, when taken together, they uh, they prove definitely interesting. There, I said it. <laughs> so let's start with uh, the first one. This one is biographical details including his lifespan in relation to Shakespeare, access to known sources of Shakespeare's works, affiliation with people connected to the works of Shakespeare, and biographical coincidences with events described in Shakespeare's plays and poems. So uh, his personal connection with Shakespeare and the the fact that they had had close affiliations and uh, uh, they had actual coincidences within their own... uh, 
how how their own life were developed. Uh, maybe they were born in the same year and died in the same year, and uh, all these really biographical coincidences may prove that uh, Shakespeare ultimately was a merge of these three great minds. Oh, that's, uh, and uh, like locations and like the coincidences there also p- played into the theory as well. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so the second one is a, a conspiracy, actually, in which Ben Johnson was complicit in hiding Neville's identity and the true author. So we're talking about these men had these men had ways that they could communicate with each other, and they had ways that they could have definitely easily known about each other. And so the fact that uh, Neville and Johnson could have had this relationship, and uh, the the fact that they hid Neville's identity. Really, really makes sense because they would have known each other and they could have worked together on this conspiracy to hide the true authorship authorship of Shakespeare. Yeah, and uh, in some of Ben Johnson's works, he actually mentions uh, Henry Neville quite often. Yeah, so there's the connection there in itself. So it wouldn't surprise... I mean, it was obvious that Ben Johnson had a connection with Neville and uh, it's, it, showed through, it showed in all of his works. Exactly. So the connection's definitely there. And uh, he, he could have easily hidden Neville's identity as a true author. And that's really uh, Ben Johnson's place from this theory. He's really a co-conspirator. He doesn't really take uh, a publishing role or uh, any other role. He really just, he helps, I guess. He really just helps develop this this theory and that he plays this part of uh, just, just a co-conspirator where he... Uh, he does these odd jobs almost or uh, like hiding Neville's identity and hiding Bacon's identity and making and helping make these codes and clues that they had throughout the, the first folio. And uh, that's really his role within this. All right. And then the third one is an interpretive reading of the Northumberland manuscript and a manuscript known as the tower notebook. So uh, I read about this and supposedly uh, it, revealed clues that uh neville and bacon could have been uh could have been authors of could have been authors of shakespeare's works and that's just one of the examples among many because we've seen these codes and stuff in uh shakespeare's sonnets and first folio we've seen uh some actually some codes in uh neville's own works and johnson's own works and uh even bacon's own works so it's not only in Shakespeare, but also in these three men's own writings. So these these uh, manuscripts were their own writings, and these and the interpretive reading comes from that. Yeah, it's the interpretation very much. So the fourth one is actually a cipher message that is hidden in the dedication of Shakespeare sonnets. And uh, this was brought up by Peter Munson in the YouTube documentary that I told you guys about. And uh, it made a reference to, uh, to two authors within, a, within the dedication of the first folio that Johnson actually wrote himself. And uh, this comes with uh, an anagram, which an anagram is pretty much uh, taking letters and uh, pieces of letters and combining them into different words than their, their original words. And supposedly it reveals that there were two authors and it, it said, this figureth the authors with an S. So there were uh, maybe two authors that worked together to work on Shakespeare's works. And um, these are supposedly Neville and Neville and Bacon. And then the theory proposes that many aspects of Neville's biography may be seen as relevant. Most fundamentally, that Neville's dates 1562 to 1615 are very similar to Shakespeare's 1564 to 1616. So these men may have both been born and died around the same date as we, we talked about earlier. 
And then the the Neville theory also holds that Sir Francis Bacon may have also been a co-author aiding Neville in the publication of Shakespeare's work and that Ben Jonson also conspired to conceal the true authorship of Shakespeare's work. So this connection and this circle of people that we've been talking about. So where it really gets interesting is with Sir Francis Bacon as a co-author and especially with uh, some of the stuff that he wrote and Bacon really plays probably the most important part in this connection or this theory. So let's get into Sir Francis Bacon. Now, moving on from Henry Neville, we're going to talk about Sir Francis Bacon as a co-author. Now, I actually like Bacon a lot more than Neville because of its uh, taste. You know, it tastes really good. <laughs> no, this time we're talking about the person and not the breakfast food that you have. Uh, that you have at breakfast. Uh, this person is Sir Francis Bacon. And uh, as we talked about in the last episode, he was a philosopher, an essayist, and a scientist, but he may have also been a co-author with Neville in writing the plays that were publicly attributed to William Shakespeare. And uh, various explanations have been offered for this, most notably that Bacon's rise to high office might have been hindered, where it become known that he wrote the plays for public stage. Uh, thus, the plays were accredited to Shakespeare, who was merely a front to shield the identity of Bacon. So if you think about it, this is pretty much like a, an FBI agent secretly having a great career as a, as a ballerina. There, In his sphere of work, it, it would have been humiliating for him. And so uh, he, he didn't want his identity known, and so he had Shakespeare as a front for the text that maybe actually Sir Francis Bacon wrote himself. So because of his, his popularity in, in politics, he didn't want people to see him as uh, a sort of entertainer. He wanted people to see him as, as a very serious person. Yeah, probably exactly that with uh, the, the political sphere, which is very serious. And then the play side of it, which was the entertainment, which was the let loose of the day. So uh, the, the contradiction between those two, it makes sense that uh, Bacon wouldn't have wanted to have been known as the author of these works. So actually, Bacon was the first alternative candidate suggested as the author of Shakespeare's plays. And this was really because of the theory that was put forth in the mid-19th century based on cor correspondences between the philosophical ideas found in Bacon's writings and the works of Shakespeare. And uh, later proponents claimed to have found legal and autobiographical allusions in cryptographic ciphers and codes in the plays and, and poems to support the theory. So it's intriguing that Bacon was actually the first alternative, considering his uh, his prestige and uh, considering that he may have actually been a, a Rosicrucian leader. So the fact that uh, he could have had uh, these correspondences and that the philosophical ideas found in Bacon's writings and uh, the works of Shakespeare were somehow related and that Bacon was actually the, the author of Shakespeare. And maybe it's not so uh, far-fetched either because of Bacon's uh, relationship with the Rosicrucians. Being a leader of it, he definitely have a lot of connections. Yeah, not just within the within the political sphere, but also, also within the spiritual sphere. And uh, with uh, the authorship and uh, some of Bacon's own writings, it's uh, it's not too far-fetched that these, these ciphers and cryptographic codes used within uh used within Bacon's writing in which he became actually really not well known for it because he was a Rosicrucian leader where uh were later found in these plays so it's it's not unbelievable that uh if Bacon was the author that we would find these cryptographic ciphers and codes So Francis Bacon has been assumed to be the true author of Venus and Adonis and the Rape of Lucerys, as suggested by the sobriquet Labio. And uh, this is in a series of poems published in 1597 to 1598. Um, Baconians, as we referenced the term earlier, take this to be a coded reference to Bacon on the grounds that the name derives from Rome's most famous legal scholar, Marcus Labio, with Bacon holding an equivalent position in Elizabethan England. And the fact that Marcus Labio had such an influential political role 
within Rome and it's referenced in these plays or uh, sorry, in Venus and Adonis and the break, the loose reign that, uh, that term and the political role that Marcus Labio had himself and the fact that it was so similar to what Bacon had is a reference and a, a clear sign in itself that Bacon may have actually been the author of these works. So, what exactly was Marcus Labio's background again? Sorry. He was uh, one of the most famous legal scholars in ancient Rome. And uh, he was referenced in these texts. And the connections between him and Bacon were... Uh, they pretty much had equivalent positions. Oh, that's crazy. So, referencing Marcus Labio is almost like uh, Bacon's subtle way of saying... Uh, our, our Bacon's subtle way of mentioning himself as such a legal scholar, very similar to Labio. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, connection there. Yeah. And then uh, in 1637, the third edition of Images or Tables of Plots painting of the two Greek sophists or philostrophets and the statues of Calistrate was published in Paris, France, in a book by Blaise de Viginary. And on page 486 of this book appears a play entitled Hercules, or, sorry, entitled Hercules Furious, which showed a gigantic figure, Hercules, shaking a spear. In his curious work, Viginary attempts to explain the Baconian symbolism. Francis Bacon is revealed as the philosophical Hercules, whom time will establish as the true spear shaker. You see that reference? Yeah, I see it. So mm. that's where Shakespeare derives his name. Or uh, no, that's uh, that's Bacon's way of saying that he was Shakespeare because uh, he developed that plate. So it was like, "Hello, Hercules is shaking the spear. I am Shakespeare." <laughs> wow. I, I honestly, I that's so hard to believe that nobody didn't find that out earlier. Yeah, that seems so. Uh, that seems so face forward, like spear shaker Shakespeare. I mean, that's that shouldn't be a hard connection to draw. That's a that's a great pun though too. I love that. I love the subtle way that he just slid that into his into his painting. Oh. That's that's awesome. All right, so. Francis Bacon has definitely some really strong connections. And uh, I think, I think out of all of these people, um, Johnson and Neville and Bacon, I think Bacon is probably the strongest connection to Shakespeare that we have. I agree. And like, there's so many connections within his works that reveal that. Yeah. And uh, that's just some of those. If you guys want to learn more, I definitely recommend again, that YouTube documentary. And, and that's in the, that's in the description, but Let's get into uh and let's get into Ben Johnson as a co-conspirator. Now we talked about Ben Johnson earlier, and we talked about his really strong relationship with Shakespeare, having written uh, plays and having directed Shakespeare's acting himself. But we really haven't uh, talked too much about his connection with this conspiracy. So, uh, <clears throat> Jake, would you like to uh, elaborate on that? Yeah, like you were saying, Ben Johnson really had a strong relationship with Bacon and Shakespeare. And uh, for a time, he was really Shakespeare's stenographer and uh, his Latin interpreter. And uh, he even made his debut as a playwright because of him. And uh, yet, ironically, he wrote that Bacon should be named and stand as the mark and acum of our language, but not Shakespeare. So he had uh, strong connections with Shakespeare, but in his mind, he thought that Bacon was a better author than Shakespeare, actually. Well, maybe maybe that's exactly because of this conspiracy. Yeah. I mean, maybe he knew that Shakespeare wasn't writing his own works. So that'd be, uh, that'd be evidence to support that. Yeah, the fact that he put Bacon above Shakespeare and having such a close connection with Shakespeare, especially considering that he became a playwright because of Shakespeare, and uh, he put Bacon over him really shows... Uh, that this theory may may prove true, because uh, you wouldn't think that otherwise he'd put uh, he'd put Shakespeare on the top, but he puts Bacon on the top instead. Yeah, he'd have like no logical reason to uh, treasure Bacon above Shakespeare, yet he does. And this theory would prove as to why. Yeah, 
And uh, actually, in fact, Ben Johnson constantly refers to Shakespeare's erudition as being greatly exaggerated by Victorian enthusiasts and suggests actually that the works display only the typical knowledge of a man with a grammar school education of the time. His Latin is derived from school books of the era, and not only does he mistake the scansions of many classical names in Trollius and Cressida, but also has Greeks and Trojans citing Plato and Aristotle a thousand years before their birth. So again, this is almost Ben Jonson insulting Shakespeare. And uh, not only does he put Bacon above Shakespeare, like we were talking about, but he, he pretty much says here that Shakespeare was only an average man and that he uh, maybe even lacked in some aspects to the average man. Wow, that's, uh, that's harsh. Harsh for someone who's helping you throughout your career. Yeah, right? You think he'd have a... Had he would have a high aspiration towards Shakespeare, but uh, instead he really insult and insults him, and he uh, he calls him out on all these uh, mistakes and stuff that he makes. So maybe he thinks. So maybe he knows that Shakespeare's not a great guy after all. Yeah, maybe it's his subtle way of revealing that Shakespeare was only an average man, and that he couldn't have written the books and stuff that his name is on. So maybe he is. Maybe he knows uh, what Shakespeare is doing, but maybe he's upset that Shakespeare is taking credit for Bacon's work. Yeah, especially if he was only a man of uh, of average intelligence and that uh, he only had basic grammar knowledge at the time. Uh, it would make sense that you would actually defend Bacon in this case. That's very interesting to think about. All right, so I want to get into another thing, and this is the Sweet Swan of Avon. And uh, in this, Johnson actually supposedly makes a reference in his poem prefacing the first folio that suggests that since native swans in Britain are mute, this is a subtle hint that Johnson, or a, sorry, a subtle hint from Johnson that Shakespeare was not a true writer. And this suggests that as a motive for the conspiracy, Neville's status as an author was hidden because he wouldn't have wanted to have been known as a playwright. So similar to Bacon, we were talking about as well, uh, Neville wouldn't want to be known as the author or the playwright of these books. So they had they, they had their names up. And uh, I, I found it interesting that they connect the Sweet Swan of Avon to the, the preface of the first folio. And uh, the fact that native swans are actually mute. So maybe... Bacon was actually just a mute person who's a, whose words weren't actually his own, but instead just a name that they used as a cover-up. Wow. Think about that. It's like a, the, the Hercules plate that we talked about earlier. It was That was Bacon's subtle hint at, uh, at showing that they, they were the true authors of Shakespeare and not Shakespeare himself. This is, this is Johnson's equivalent with... Uh, the native swans in Britain that are actually mute and uh, his reference to the sweet swan of Avon. Wow. And if you guys don't know what the sweet swan of Avon is, it was actually, um, it was actually Shakespeare's pretty much nickname because uh, he was referred to as this elegant man from, uh, from the land of Avon. So that's the, the sweet swan of Avon. And, uh, Johnson was the one that attributed that name to him. So the fact that Johnson gives him that name and a Shakespeare takes it as a compliment. And uh, the other fact that it may actually be an insult because uh, it may show that he's not the true writer was really Johnson's uh, cruel trick that uh, he played on Shakespeare. Wow. That's like uh, saying, uh, Ian, wow, you're a really cool person. And then doing a really solid wink. Yeah, that's that's that would be a very uh, Ben Johnson way of insulting someone. Very subtly. Yeah. But right. yeah, that also that also really supports the idea that uh, Shakespeare wasn't as intelligent as he, as uh, people think he is. He's not uh, recognizing that he's being insulted. Yeah. So all in all, maybe Shakespeare actually wasn't the author of his own works, but merely a cover up among this great circle of men and the order of the Rosicrucians to hide this secret agenda that maybe even made it as far as Oak Island. So it really, 
provides a an, an an interesting way to to wrap up this great web of conspiracy that has been developed concerning the Victorian man Shakespeare, who may not be the person that we've read about. All right, we'll wrap it up. Unless you don't have anything else to say. No, that's uh, that seems like a good note to end it on. So let's uh, let's wrap this up. Yeah. All right, we'll wrap this up, and then next week we'll have another episode on a historical subject. And uh, I'm actually thinking about doing that on a series on the the Freemasons. And uh, we've been kind of going through all the secret societies. We talked about the KGC. This time we talked about the Rosicrucians. So I figure next time we'll talk about the, the Freemasons and start knocking out all these interesting fraternal societies. And then uh, maybe even get into the, the Bavarian Illuminati eventually, who has been uh, such... A misunderstood thing throughout history. People attribute the the Illuminati to the New World Order and uh, all these terrible things, but the historical Illuminati was really dedicated to scientific enlightenment, and so that's why I'm talking about all these fraternal societies because there's so many conspiracy theories surrounding them that I really just want to debunk those. And uh, I hope you guys have been enjoying these episodes recently. All right, so as usual, I'd like to give a shout-out to Anchor, our podcasting service. That's really been a miracle in making these episodes, and uh, we really couldn't have done it without it. And uh, if you guys have ever wanted to make your own podcast, this is a great service to do that, and we highly recommend it. And uh, like I've said before, besides a few technology issues here and there, it's been a great service, and uh, it's definitely helped us in making this podcast. And then uh, more importantly, again, I'd like to give a shout out to some of you guys as our listeners as we continue to embark on this podcast and for some of those who have liked and been following the Facebook page. And uh, I thank you for the growth that we've been experiencing on there. And uh, if you guys ever want to write a review or a, or a comment or even ask us a question for maybe a possible episode in the future, please feel free to do that because we'll definitely shout you out in the podcast and then We'll, we'll bring that up. I think we're at uh, 54 followers on that Facebook page right now. And uh, that's a really good start. And I'm, I'm really happy with that. But let's keep it growing. Let's try to get to 100. Because, again, remember, if we get to uh, get to 100 subscribers, I'll do something crazy around that episode time. Yeah, look forward to that. And, uh, it, it'll be really fun. Yeah. And then, uh, Ian, if you don't have anything else to say, uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Sounds good. I hope you guys all enjoyed uh, the podcast we worked on today, and uh, we'll see you in the next one. Yep. All that being said, thanks, guys, and have a nice week. This is Jacob. Yeah. All right. Carpe diem. Carpe diem. <laughs>